Inspired by conversations from the first two seasons of The Strategist, The Strategist After Hours brings together Bush Institute experts to discuss today's hot topics. In this episode, our roundtable takes a look at the responsibilities we hold as American citizens and our role as individuals in making our union a stronger one. We'll also get a few tips from a former diplomat and find out what we can learn from Michael Scott on The Office. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. Welcome to another episode of the Strategist After Hours, where we take topics that have come up on the show and bounce them around these fine minds at the Bush Center. Our panel today, first off, we have Hannah Abney, the VP of External Affairs, whose voice you're going to recognize from our interview with President Bush. Hannah, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me again. And we also have Matt Rooney, the director of the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative. Matt, it's been a while, but we're glad you came back. It's an honor. Thank you. And we have making her debut on The Strategist, Rhonda Houston, who's chief of, staff, <laughs> chief of staff to Bush Center CEO Ken Hirsch. Rhonda, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor. Thanks for the invitation. And finally, we have podcast veteran Lindsay Lloyd, the Bradford M. Freeman director of the Human Freedom Initiative at the Bush Center, making his debut on The Strategist as well. Lindsay, thanks for doing this. Glad to be here. Thank you. So on the first episode of The Strategist, our guest was Carly Fiorina. And at the end of the interview, we asked her one of our usual questions. What are we as a nation not talking about that we should be talking about? And her answer we thought was kind of interesting. And she said that the role and power that each of us as citizens have, we're not talking enough about. And so we wanted to follow up on that today and take a deep dive into that question. So I I wanted to start by going around the horn and just hearing from each of you, what does it mean to be a good citizen of the United States. Hannah, what do you think? Well, so I was um, was doing a little research before this. Given You're that, always prepared. Well, you know, these are some smart people I'm at the table with. <laughs> Heavy um, hitters. And I wanted, I just looked up, Pew did a, a poll recently that talked about actually this very topic, which was the question they asked was, what makes a good citizen? Um, and the responses they got, I'll give you the top three, voting in elections, paying all the taxes you owe, and always following the law. It went down, serving on jury duty, respecting the opinions of those who disagree, participating in the census, volunteering. But I thought it was interesting, um, and maybe this is you know the softer side of me coming out with three little boys who I see growing up in an increasingly divisive community. Um, well, not community. I think the community they're in is pretty great, but a divisive world um, is how far down on that list was listening to people, just like just respecting them, even if you have a disagreement, helping others, following what's going on in our world. Um, I mean, obviously, voting in elections is really important. I think more people should do it. Paying the taxes you owe, you should probably do that. Um, and yes, you should absolutely follow the law. But I think one of the things that is increasingly obvious to me is unless we start respecting each other more and being willing to have sometimes uncomfortable, but really important conversations, I just don't think we're going to be able to, um, 
get past some of the divisiveness and some of the just meanness that's occurring in our society. And I, and I think, I think that's, what's important in being a good citizen. Um, no, no, nothing against paying your taxes or serving on jury duty, which I think is very important. Well, it's almost like a hierarchy of needs. Like you have to, a, you have to pay your taxes and don't murder people uh, at the base, but then you keep going up and these other things are just as important. Yeah. I think sometimes people think it's cool to be snarky and tough and divisive and louder, being right and being loud instead of being a little bit softer. And Matt, your perspective, you came from a State Department background. You spent a lot of years overseas as an American living in another country. What's, what are your thoughts on, on this? Well, I was tempted to start by saying that, contrary to Car- Carly Fiorina, with all respect to her, I would actually argue that we're talking a lot about citizenship. To, to quote Mark Twain, everybody's talking about it, but nobody's doing anything about it. Um, Mark Twain is said to have said that about the weather. Um, <laughs> and and cause, so, you know, as Hannah says, I see us talking, a lot of people talking about what they are entitled to as a citizen or what their what their rights are as a citizen. But I don't see enough people talking about what their obligations are as a citizen. And, um, uh, you know, this talk of absolute right to do something mm-hmm. is actually uh, kind of not a democratic sentiment um, because there are no absolute rights in a democracy. All rights come with obligations. Uh, and and we're not really talking enough about that, in my view. And and that kind of goes back to Hannah's point about about the need to be respectful of others, which which flows from the thought that I don't have any unrestricted rights. I have only rights that are embedded in obligations to others, and I don't get to exercise the rights until I've discharged the obligations. Uh, but we're kind of skipping that step, in my view, uh, in our society these days. Are there specific obligations that you feel like are really particularly being ignored? Uh, well, the obligation uh, to be respectful of others is, is certainly being ignored. It, you know, it, it, I'm tempted to say that it, that it has something to do with our car culture. Because you know, if you're in a if you're in a European city and you're walking down the street, you're not going to shoot the bird at somebody who's only two feet away from you, right? But if you're in your car, safely distance, a safe distance from another driver, another driver something does something that offends you, you you shoot him the bird, and then and then that translates itself into social media where you can say anything because you know you're never going to have to face to face confront the person that you're insulting or or trashing or calling out, uh, and so. That, that sense of an unrestricted, unrestricted right to say whatever I want without having to face the consequence of the reaction of the person across the table from me uh, and, the, and, the, and, and the feelings that my speech, whatever it is, in, incites in that person, that, that I think is creating the kind of coarseness in the culture that Hannah commented on. Interesting. Rhonda, what, where, how does that strike you? So, you know, I think we focus a lot on big picture and globally. And I think a lot of times we don't think about it as far as our own intimate um, friends and our own intimate community is concerned. And I think if we thought about being a citizen in our families and what what that means in your family, what that means in your your close friend network, I think we think a lot differently about it because I agree with Hannah and Matt that sometimes when you have that distance between you, when you're on social media or you're in your car, you're not, you don't think that you're going to have that con- that close contact with, with people. And so if you know that you're going to have an intimate conversation with your friend or your family, you are less likely to be as divisive um, 
as you are when you we when you don't think you'll ever have contact or you'll you'll ever see those individuals. And so, um, you know, we just have to get to the point where we think about our world and our extended community more as a family um, of of citizens that we are related to because we are all citizens of this great country and this great world. So it sounds like we're ready. We're all ready to blame social media for the fall of modern civilization. Is really what I'm, <laughs> what I'm hearing so, so far. So we should definitely never have any more podcasts ever. Oh, never, never. Uh oh. <laughs> Lindsay, what uh, where does where do you land on this? Well, you know, it struck me. Hannah opened by talking about polling data, and we at the Bush Center did some polling of our own last year with uh, partners uh, from the Penn Biden Center and Freedom House, kind of looking at the health of American democracy. And there was a lot of there was a lot of reason for concern in there, but there was also a surprising amount, I think, uh, of, of of reason for optimism. Um, we, you know, we know that um, people are dissatisfied with how our system is working. They feel that our democracy isn't delivering on even the most basic things of fixing the potholes in the streets or, you know, kind of very local issues that touch people. Um, but the flip side of that is we have seen upticks in voting participation. Um, as as uh, toxic as social media can be, um, we have an explosion of people who are making their opinions known for for better or for worse uh, in ways that they couldn't do ten years ago. So the um, you know young people participation, which we hear about all the time in the 2014 uh, midterm elections, it was about 21 percent, very low. In the 2016, um, or excuse me, 2018, that went up to 31 percent. So on one hand, that's that's basically a 50 percent increase in people who are going to the polls. On the other hand, it still means that two out of three young people uh, didn't feel it was worth their time to go out and cast a ballot. So um, there's a lot of work to be done, but I think that um, in part because this era is so divisive that more people are engaging, maybe not always in the best ways, maybe not always in the most positive ways, but there is, we have seen an uptick in all kinds of different involvement in people volunteering and people speaking out uh, and, and in voting. So this is interesting. You were saying... Matt was saying that people aren't necessarily meeting their obligations toward democracy. And you're saying that some of the polling data was saying that people feel like the democracy isn't meeting their basic mm-hmm. needs. Like, wh- who, who com- which comes first? Yeah, I mean, I think they're both right at the same time. I, the, but this notion that, that our democracy somehow is, is no longer able to deliver on the way, uh, on the things that Americans need, um, compared to, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever the figure it is, you know, if you look at a lot of the big issues out there that have just been um, stalemated in, in Washington for years, like immigration reform, which everybody agrees needs to happen, but it can't happen because we, you know, we're in our respective camps and we can't seem to compromise anymore. So de- democracy is not delivering on things that people genuinely care about. Gun control would be another one. You know, nobody has a perfect solution to this, but but everybody wants to see things change so we don't have these weekly mass shootings around the country. I think it's so interesting, too. Um, when I was looking at this other poll, I also saw something on Pew from about a year ago, I think, that talked about the difference between the post-millennial and, ge- and millennial generation. And I, to be totally honest, get a little bit tired of the whole conversation around like, what do the young people think versus what do the older people think? I think it's, you know, a little Uh bit overblown. Going to scratch that question from here in about (laughs) five minutes. But it reminded me there was also an interesting article in Politico yesterday. Um, I think it was Politico that talked about um, how much older our society is in terms of the age of our government and the age of those who represent us. And I wonder a little bit 
about what the future is going to look like. Because when you look at things like um, questions on whether or not increasing ethnic and racial diversity is good for society, the gap between what Gen Z and millennials think, 62% think it's good for for society. I wonder, that seems low to me actually, but... Yeah. Um, but only, you know, 42% of the silent generation, 48% of boomers said that increasing ethnic or racial diversity was good for society. Think about it that like that way you can think about the difference between how men and women answer questions about whether there are enough women in top political positions or executive business positions. And we're just on totally different sides of the field on this, I feel like. Um, and I wonder how that comes together, you know, sort of as this younger group of people grows up and starts to take on more responsibility in places of work and hopefully in places of our government. um, I wonder how some of these issues will be um, sort of shaken loose or if they'll be shaken loose. You know, I feel like when the, when the history of this period is written, we will observe that we today are facing kind of like tectonic shifts Mm -hmm. in the society and in the economy and in the way our politics works. And, and we haven't yet articulated to ourselves what plates are moving and what direction they're going and things like demographics. I mean, there is a, there is a fundamental reality in the demographics, demographics of this country that the native born population is stabilizing and headed for decline. And, and at the end of the day, to have a growing economy and a thriving economy, you've got to have a growing society. And if you don't have a growing society, you can't have a growing economy. And we haven't really internalized that. We haven't really explained to ourselves, we haven't articulated to ourselves what that challenge is mm-hmm. in a meaningful way and in a way that lets us come up with an agreed solution. And so we're fighting over trivia and we're fighting on the fringes mm-hmm. of issues like like demographics, like uh, the incredible rapidity of technological change, which is gathering pace, even as our ability to deal with the consequences appears to be declining. And and we have a government structure that's inhabited by people like me, who, who came up at a time when those things weren't true yet. And it's difficult for us to internalize what it means. And, you know, that's a pretty fundamental challenge. Where are you going to get more people? Right. You got to get them from somewhere. They don't come from nowhere. And, and the, you know, kind of the iron rule of demographics is that, you know, people who are going to be 40, 20 years from now are 20 today. You can't manufacture anymore. And so, uh, w- and we're just not, you know, we, we, we just lack the, the leadership defined as a leader, but also in the society as a whole to understand those challenges and, and, kind of articulate them in a way that lets us come up with a solution. And at the moment, we're just, we're just kind of spinning our wheels as we, as we wait for that to emerge. Yeah, it's like we're camped out in our little tribes, yeah. kind of afraid to talk about things that might yeah. be uncomfortable or hard yeah. or might make us actually compromise with each other. Yeah. But also to Hannah's point, we can't, we can't put technology and internet and all the advancements that we're making back in the box. Mm-hmm. However, we are... It, it also contributes to what separates us because we listen to people who speak our same language. Um, we only watch what we people who agree and who co-sign on those things that we see and believe. So how do we get past, you know, how, how do we introduce to someone who can choose, you know, so easily what they see and what they hear and introduce other ideas and other thoughts into, you know, into their sphere. 
which almost brings us to the point of of whose job is it to to make a good citizen? Is it mm-hmm. the government's job to make this happen? Is it a family's job? Is it really fall entirely on an adult individual? Like where where whose responsibility does this fall on? Yes, all of the above, and, and then some. I mean, I think. You know, there's been a lot of criticism that schools aren't teaching civics well enough, that schools aren't teaching citizenship well enough. And that it's probably true. You know, that piece of the curriculum has been displaced for more attention to science and more attention to math and things like that. Um, But it it starts in the home. It starts with civic groups. It starts with, you know, businesses, with with politicians. You know, if our if our politicians were doing a better job, more people, uh, fewer people would be turned off by politics. You know, the the, the ugliness that we see in Washington or in state government um, makes a lot of people just want to want to run away from it. So we could be doing a better job there, too, with our elected officials and, and appointed officials uh, doing a better job. But it's it's really I think all of the above have to be doing more. Although ultimately, it seems to me that, you know, if you look at kind of the, the philosophical roots of our democracy and the, and the Enlightenment ideas that flowed into the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, our society is basically built on the premise that the individual is the fundamental building block of the society. And, and so the individual, ultimately, we all as individual voters are responsible for these things. And, and when we let ourselves get sucked in by, you know, it's, unbelievable to me that anybody could have been taken in by the whole Pizzagate thing, mm-hmm. right? But there they are, apparently responsible individuals who probably pay most of their taxes and generally follow the law the rest of the time, and they buy into this. And so ultimately, you, as an individual, you have to you have to police yourself. There's The way our system is set up, if the individual can't police himself, then, then we're in deep trouble. Well, that almost seems like it, should, it needs to come from a place of compassion. I should have said if the individual can't police their self. Oh, wow, the grammar police just Excuse walked me, in just on police, yourself. I just policed myself. See? Yeah, you did. You just gave yourself a grammar citation. <laughs> it's all those years you spent in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> so is that something that we're we're missing? Is is there is is the compassion element missing because of social media? Is, it seems like it all comes back to putting yourselves in the in the feet of in the shoes of the person next to you. Like why are we falling short? I feel like I feel like we are the first really mass society. Like we were the first mass industrial society, the first society that was not essentially tribal. And, and, and therefore, we are the forerunner in trying to answer that question. How do you reconcile the fact that you're just one individual in a society of 350 million people in, in which you have, you're surrounded by people who think very differently from you and in some cases who you don't necessarily recognize as your peers and you have to find a way to deal with them. And... Um, you know, most other societies on this earth are basically tribal in the sense that most everybody feels some essential form of kinship with the people around them. And we're the only, we're the first society to kind of challenge that norm. And so I, th- I think there's no obvious answer to the question. And uh, it's, it's, and there's no foreordained outcome to the problem either. I mean, it could easily come a cropper. We asked the question, we posed the question is, what does it take, what does it mean to be a good citizen of the U.S.? Is how much how important is it to be a good citizen of the can see yourself as a citizen of the world versus seeing yourself as a citizen of the U S as we start looking at trying to find ways to work closer together. I think we have a pretty strong point at the Bush center on what that means. Um, I also wonder a little bit, you know, it feels to me, I think to a lot of people, most people probably that uh, sometimes this is cyclical, right? Like we go through these periods of uh, isolation and insulation in our country, in our world, um, 
And then it doesn't happen again for kind of a long time. And I think maybe a lot of our society either wasn't around or doesn't remember um, the consequences of, of that perspective. Um, I think that also goes back to what Lindsay was saying and your question about who's responsible. We don't learn it in school anymore. You know, we don't teach our history. And so, you know, the old saying, if you don't know your history, you're destined to repeat it. And that's, that's kind of what we're doing. I think also, do you ever feel like we're, um, afraid to have conversations, whether the divisiveness is going to create this situation. I remember, um, I had a friend who mentioned to me that her children didn't see color. She, her kids are the same age as mine. I mean, her nine-year-old doesn't see color. And I kind of took that home and thought about it. And I came back to work actually the next day. And I think Rhonda, you and I had this conversation about, it didn't sit well with me, that comment, because I thought, well, I would never say that, like, I, you know, well, just, when you, I just, weird. I actually just had this conversation with someone too. When you, in my opinion, when you don't see color, you don't see a big part of what makes someone who they are. Yeah, and all of what goes into, you know, them as a person, as yeah. an individual, as a human being. Right. Because there are, you know, their their ancestors and the things that their ancestors went through meant something, mm-hmm. and has a lasting effect. And so if you don't see color, then you you almost don't see a, a big piece of what makes them them. I adore my friend. I think what her comment, the way, what sat with me that evening is how, what a privilege that must, that is. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm a white girl from suburban Wisconsin. Like what a privilege it is, I guess, for the, for, it is privilege. It's a definition of privilege, I guess, right. for right. us to be able to say things like we don't see color. Mm-hmm. Because it's not an issue that we've experienced. And- exactly. And, and you know, I would, um, I don't think that you can't not see it. Yeah. You know, you can't not see it, you know. And I, you know, I, I think it makes people feel better to say that they don't see it. Um, but how can you not? Well, and aren't we all richer if we do see it exactly. and we talk about it and we yep. understand the different mm-hmm. parts of our, that make our society so rich? So we, we've, I think, identified several things as we've as we've used up what about twenty minutes now, probably. Um, we've identified a lot of things that we've really noticed that are playing a big role in in where we're at. Let's talk now about some solutions. Like, what are what are some things that someone listening right now can go outside and do? Other than I think we all agreed, spend maybe a little less time on social media. Maybe just just a little. Don't get off entirely. Just a little. Or bit just less. don't be a troll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lindsay, what do you think? What are some actions that we can actually take and do instead of just ruminate? Well, I mean, if you start with voting, you know, making it easier and not harder to vote in this country would go a long way towards improving things. We've got kind of a, a, a trend that's happening here in Texas, happening other where, in other places in, around the U.S. Where, where there are active campaigns to make it harder to vote, cutting the, cutting the days of early voting, making uh, more documents required to vote and so forth in the name of combating voter fraud, which by all, you know, all reasonable evidence doesn't exist um, in any sort of a, you know, a, a, any sort of a phenomenon that would, would be cause for concern. So, you know, looking at ways to make, 
it easier to vote. Here in Dallas County, they're going to, uh, in the next general election, the idea is that you can go to any polling place in the county and vote. The, uh, the voting machines are the same. You don't have to go to the one by your home. If it's closer to go one by your office or near your kid's school or whatever, you can do that. That's a, that's a good step. That means that it's you know marginally easier for busy, overworked people to make their way to the polls. So I, I, would, I would start there. How can we make it easier uh, for more Americans to get engaged? And you, this comes from the perspective of you spend a lot of time looking at North Korea and Burma and places whose democracies are really just just fledgling. What what? Or non-existent. Or non-existent. Case right. North Case Korea. North, you're, sorry, Burma fledgling, North Korea. Uh, um, what <laughs> what should we learn from what should we learn from watching these? Like, are we taking our, are we taking what we have for granted? What can we learn from this? Sure. No, I think I think a lot of Americans do take it for granted. I mean, you know, even though there has been a modest uptick in voter participation over the last several elections. Uh, a lot of Americans just choose to sit it out, particularly younger Americans and particularly non-white Americans. Um, so uh, for a lot of people, they, you know, it gets back to what I was saying before about democracy delivering. They don't believe that their vote for a specific candidate or a, a ballot proposition will make a difference. And I think we need to, to be thinking about how do we how do we, we change that mindset to make people understand. Yeah, I had before I came to the Bush Center, I had the, the great privilege of working for a democracy organization overseas and got to observe elections in in about I think it was 15 countries around the world and to see um, people who don't take it for granted who will you know stand in long lines and hot sun uh, to cast to cast a ballot because they believe it's 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 important and they fought for that right and they've waited years for that right um, you know that's an experience which I would love to be able to share with more people in this country to make them understand that this you know, this process that we take for granted and the, you know, all the noise of politics is actually something that people around the world are still craving. Um, and and we, we are so blessed to be able to cast a vote. That was a good point. I'm, I'm the first one to to say, oh, man, I've got to wait for 10 minutes. I'm going to, I'll do it later. I can't, I can't wait for 10 minutes to do this. And, um, or like our, the donuts weren't fresh that they provided. It's, it's ridiculous. And, and, but you get, you take things for granted, you know. And, and if you wait an hour for a table at your favorite restaurant, you should be prepared to get in line to vote. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. And also, where are you voting? Where they're giving you donuts? <laughs> um, right. Actually, just at, it was at a um, near oh, what? What was? I can't remember the name of the school, but it was a school. They had two boxes of donuts. It was great. Well, it's just two. Stormed by podcast. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, no kidding. I, I better not name the address. But and, I feel like that so, may not be legal, actually. No. But they give it to you after you have to after you come out. They don't give it to you on the way in. We'll so, cut this so you don't from have, the podcast. <laughs> you don't have sticky. You notice, you notice they had donuts and not rolls. This is true. Oh, that's true. Yeah. What if it's their dietary restrictions on some people? So what, not everybody could have something to eat. That's, I didn't think about that. What about that. those of us who are gluten free? Right. There were not any gluten free options, as I recall. It was, it was options were sprinkled, and not sprinkled. Gone off the rails. Gone off the rails. Well, let's put it together. Um, so, so, Hannah, when you you're a big you are a big proponent of being really involved locally too. And I think as all the talk nationally and everything on Twitter and you turn on the TV, it's all about what's happening at the national level, what's happening in Congress, what's happening in the, and the oval office. Uh, but what about locally with schools and, and what, how do we get more people involved there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, I think when you're a parent and you're in a school all the time, it's a little easier uh, than when either you don't have kids who are in the school system or, you know, you're, you're past that, that time. Um, I think you have to also, we have to be realistic about not everybody's going to care about all the issues and we can't expect everybody to always be at all the things. 
So I, um, you guys know uh, that I'm kind of like a hippy-dippy yogi in a lot of ways. Uh, no. And, uh, she, Hannah's currently wearing four different crystals to ward <laughs> off. Um, bad mojo. Oh, gosh. Anyway, uh, I follow a woman on uh, Instagram named Glennon Doyle. I don't know if any of you have heard of her. She's an author. She's an advocate. Uh, she's married to Abby Wambach from, of soccer fame. Um, but she, I'm going to paraphrase, and she was so much more eloquent when she said this, but she, she says a lot of, uh, about making room at the table for the person who is the most different than you or disenfranchised because you never know when you're going to need that person. And I, I think when you, when I say it the way I just said it, when she says it, it does not sound self-serving at all. When I just said it, it that sounded completely self-serving. Um, but I think that is so critical. And I think that happens most often in our communities, making room at the table for people whose experiences are different than yours. I feel like we are at our best as a nation when we are coming, when we come together and when we appreciate our differences and learn from each other. Uh, and I think that's something that I know everyone who my kids go to school with, all the moms and all the teachers, it's what we're constantly uh, and the dads too, of course, what we're constantly working on with our kids. It would be good for us to remember it every now and again. I count myself in that in that group. So I was going to ex- actually say the exact same thing. I'm sitting here writing my notes as everyone is talking and seeking out people who are different from you um, to include in your friend circle. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. a lot of us are fortunate to work in a diverse environment. However, when we go home, we go home to a very homogenous environment. And so when you include people who are not like you, when you get to know people rather, who have different experiences, then you see those when you see things that happen on television or when you see things come across social media, you you can attach it to someone who's real and it's not an abstract an abstract person. Um, a year or so ago, we had a conversation here at the Bush Center. Um, we had a staff conversation. Actually, it was two years ago when the shootings, um, police shootings in Dallas happened. And in that conversation, I relayed something that happened to me personally. And afterwards, um, someone came up to me and said, wow, I cannot believe that happened to you. You know, I'm outraged that that happened to you, which was I appreciate it, but you ought to be outraged when that happens to anyone, not just to someone that you know. But when you know someone, you have a different effect and it and it becomes more personal. And so if we seek out people who are different than us and have different experiences and actually get to know them, then some of the some of the myths and the stereotypes are broken just because of that interaction. You know, keeping with the individual theme and, and my thought that we are, for better or worse, a society of individuals, it's, it, it seems to me, I, I have like a couple of rules of thumb for living. Um, one of them is never eat or drink anything at a cocktail party. Um, <laughs> Why? Well, I was a diplomat for many years, and, and the basic reason is that, first of all, the alcohol is there to loosen their tongues, not yours. And, and secondly, the food is bad for you. All by definition. I was um, hoping you were going to say someone would like poison you. Yeah, no, right. be like I was, a spy, I was spy and tree. Yeah, but believe me, I was not worth the effort. <laughs> um, but so, a couple of rules of thumb, and one is uh, in your social media, in your comportment when you're driving down the street, in your comportment when you're walking down the street, 
any any one of these kind of mediated interactions with other people, never comport yourself in a way that you wouldn't if you were confronting the person face to face. If you wouldn't tell a joke or make a comment or make a gesture or say a word to a person who's sitting right next to you, then you shouldn't do so in social media. It seems pretty, seems like a lot of the clutter on social media would go away if everybody did that. Uh, and the other thing I think in terms of our, our role as voters and participants in the political process is to me, the moment a political leader starts to characterize his or her opponent's position, oh, they're going to do this if they get elected, or he wants to do this, or she wants to do that. The instant those words start to come out of their mouths, you should tune them out. Because whatever they're saying is tendentious, and it's not going to help you understand the other person's point of view, and it doesn't say anything at all about the person who's speaking's point of view. Therefore, it's wasted time. And if you actually, if you listen to most political speeches these days and edit out those parts, they're pretty short. (laughs) There's not much left. Interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, it is. Are there any other just diplomat tips we should know about? Dip tips. Dip yeah. tips. Dip tips. <laughs> we need to do a whole podcast on just dip tips. Yeah, I'm we kind should, of intrigued yeah. by that. Yeah. Um, so one is, it's, it's, it's commonly said, not just in diplomacy, is, is before you criticize a person, you should walk a mile in their shoes. Because that way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away, away and you have their shoes. <laughs> 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 well, I think that may, might mean we're out of content now. <laughs> We started this episode by tackling what Carly Fiorina suggested we weren't talking enough about as a nation. So now y'all have to play forward and answer the question. What are we not talking about that we should be talking about? Rhonda, you want to kick us off? It's, it's always hard to go first. <laughs> um, hey, I'll, I'll dive in. I don't think we talk enough about um, the role of faith and the role that faith plays in our lives as individuals, in our communities, in our country. Um, and I think if we, you know, we're, we take faith out a lot, but I think if we start to put faith in whatever an individual's faith is, if we start to put faith back into um, our daily lives, that we would, um, some of the challenges that we face, uh, we would face them a little bit less. Lindsay, what do you think? Uh, I would say that we as a, as a society have been, have become very, um, wary of talking about what we believe in as Americans, um, that the, the principles that, that, um, guided the formation of this country in which we have sometimes lived up to better than other times. But, um, the notion that America can be a force for good in the world, um, that we can talk about democracy, even though ours is very flawed and very imperfect. The notion that we can go out and talk about human rights, um, even though we have many issues here that we haven't fully dealt with. Um, just, I think reminding us as a society that we can be a voice for good. We can be a force for positive change. And sometimes I think we're, we're, um, ashamed to do it or afraid afraid to do that. And I wish we did more of it as a country. You know, I'm impressed in that we've asked this question many times and these, we haven't heard either one of those answers so far yet. And we didn't tell you we were going to ask him. So you did that off the cuff. No pressure, Hannah and Matt, who wants to go, uh, who wants to go first? I have two. (laughs) Show off. (laughs) Well, the one's really a joke, kind of riffing off the last after after dark? Is after that, hour? is after it after hours? Is it after, after, it's after dark? Hours, has right? some inappropriate yeah, that's, that's a whole, that's a different podcast. Uh, which was, I think you guys talked about Lost, the television show we Lost, did. which I've never seen. I feel passionately about that. Okay. I'd have never seen it. Um, here's what I feel passionately about when it comes to television. What are we going to watch now that Netflix is no longer showing The Office? <laughs> oh, man. 
So there's that. But the fourth season of This Is Us is about to start. Yes. Yeah. Eat, uh, tweet your answers to at the Bush Center because we we I need suggestions. Give us some tips. Yeah. Netflix keeps Email canceling the shows I like. Bushcenter.org. But my real and I guess this actually kind of goes together. My real uh, one is about uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable conversations, which occur frequently on The Office. Um, <laughs> That's so but true. I think That's can what also, the whole show is about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. But I think can also occur in our, in our own lives. And this is something that I'm, I've challenged myself to do, um, and I'm like kind of succeeding, not really, is stick to what makes you uncomfortable and listen without judgment and let the perspectives of other people's no matter how uncomfortable it is, um, inform my own opinions. It doesn't mean necessarily that I'm going to, it doesn't mean I'm going to change my values. It doesn't mean I'm going to change what is matters to me. Um, but hopefully if I can stick to something, no matter how uncomfortable it makes me listen, um, without judgment, kind of trying to clear the judgment from my mind as people are talking, which I think is hard, um, which I know is hard. Um, and allowing those ideas to inform my own perspective, um, I know that that will make me a better citizen um, and probably just a better human. And we talked a little bit about respect earlier. And I think when you listen genuinely to someone else's perspective and opinion, you respect, you know, you have a little bit more respect for them and that opposite opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in other words, don't do what Michael Scott would do in any, in any given situation. D-D-W-M-S-D. It's going to make for a long bracelet. So here's a Diplo tip. Um, I think we talk too much about wealth and not enough about well-being in this country. And it, and it distorts our personal lives because we consume ourselves in an ultimately self-defeating you know, uh, effort to accumulate more stuff than the people around us. And it also, I think, it distorts our policies and our, and our national debate because we make policy in a way that's designed to maximize wealth uh, and ultimately discounts well-being. And I think that's really unfortunate. Four for four on fresh answers. Guys, thank you all so much for doing this. I think this was fun. And Andrew, what do you think? We only ever hear about you as the host. Like, I want to know what your perspective is. I was not expecting that well i mean okay so, <laughs> i'm not ready for that so here's here i'm gonna i'm gonna do that i'm gonna put my co-host Flip the script co-host uncomfortable conversation here yeah. we go your parents are both immigrants to the country that is true they mom are... came from peru your dad came from hungary right Very true um and i know we've had a lot of conversations about that how that informed your childhood um but and, like what to this moment informs my daily life almost it all comes it all comes back to that in a lot of ways so what do you think with their voices in your head as two people who came here in search of opportunity and a better life, literally fleeing oppression in a lot of ways. What do you think? I think we, we take a lot of things for granted. I think we, we need to always, I think what we don't talk enough about is that is how many opportunities are available to us here. And that the, if you really work hard at your education and work hard at bettering yourself, um, there are so many opportunities and there are still that having been said, it's not a perfect place. There are people that work hard and aren't able to capitalize on everything the country has to offer for at no fault of their own. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that we can make, that we can say America is a great place 
and we really want to make America an even better place. And I think you don't have to say America is terrible and needs all this work. And you don't have to say that America is perfect. And if you disagree with anything happening here, you need to leave. There's a middle ground, which is that it's great and we're aiming for better. Um, and I think that's the country that my parents came to is a place that they know is great and that they wanted to personally try and make better. Um, not just through them, but just as, as, you know, thinking, thinking not even in terms of themselves, but what a future family would look like and what opportunities their kids can have. And I've been very blessed to have wonderful opportunities because of the sacrifices they made as immigrants 50, 60 years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Thanks for asking that. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Couldn't possibly have had a better conclusion. Okay. So I guess we'll end there. (laughs) Thanks y'all. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.